Welcome to the Hale Report. My name is Lyric Hughes-Hale, and I'm Editor-in-Chief of EconView and your host today, Monday, December 18th, 2023. EconView, based in Chicago, is a home for independent voices and expert analysis of critical global economic issues. Thank you for joining us for our final podcast of 2023. My guest today for the 49th episode of the Hale Report is Richard Haas, until recently the longstanding president of the Council on Foreign Relations in New York, now senior counselor with Centerview Partners. We are here today to discuss foreign affairs in his new book, Bill of Obligations, The Ten Habits of Good Citizens. If you're still searching for that perfect holiday gift, especially, I think, for a young person in your life, I cannot recommend it more highly. It's not about the past, but about the future of America. Richard, welcome to the Hale Report. Great to be with you, Lark. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm assuming you're speaking to us from New York City. I am from a rainy, windy, dismal day in New York City. Okay. Well, I'll try to brighten it up here Thank you. <laughs> for you. Um, I've been honored to see you at council events over your 20-year tenure, so I know our listeners from around the world will enjoy learning more about your balanced and knowledgeable perspective on foreign affairs. Dr. Haas is well-positioned to guide us based upon his stellar academic career, dare we say Harvard, and his direct experience in policymaking. In government, he's consistently chosen the easy assignments, serving as the chair of multi-party negotiations in Northern Ireland, as well as U.S. Envoy and Policy Coordinator for the future of Afghanistan. How did you choose those assignments, <laughs> or did, did they choose you? I think it's more the latter. It was uh, They were thrust upon me. But I also want to not correct, but slightly parse something you said. You mentioned my academic affiliation was Harvard. Yes and no. No in the sense that I got rejected by Harvard when I applied uh, as a student. <laughs> and then years later, after I'd completed all my degrees, my bachelor's, my master's, and my doctorate, from this outfit called Oxford, where I did my graduate work, I then got in through the back door to teach at, at Harvard. So I, I just think it's interesting that there were, you know, it was tougher to be to get in there as a student than there was as a faculty member. <laughs> well, uh, I, you know, it could be that a Harvard rejection becomes a badge of honor. These days, <laughs> Somehow, I think it these is. days. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that's that's kind of crazy, but true. Richard worked for President George H.W. Bush as Special Assistant for the Near East and South Asia and as Senior Director at the National Security Council for Bush II. He served as Principal Advisor to Secretary of State Colin Powell during 9-11 and its aftermath in Iraq. Dr. Haas has written a memoir about the two Iraq wars, which is on my holiday reading list. I'm afraid that I just ordered the last copy on Amazon, Richard, so you, you need to let your, your publisher know. Um, a graduate of Oberlin, they were the lucky recipients, um, and a Rhodes Scholar who earned his doctorate at Oxford, Dr. Haas lived in the United Kingdom for six years. He's the author of, is it 15 books and counting? Uh Either author or editor, or I think we're up to 16 now. 16, and that can now be found on Substack. I have to say, I always look forward to Home and Away. Can you explain the title of your of your blog? Sure. Um, I'll give you the background to it. Yeah, I've written most of the books I've done, as you know, are foreign policy books. 
I wrote one of them was a management book, but my most recent book is a book about American democracy, you know, the Bill of Obligations. And I've started focusing a little bit more on domestic issues simply because I actually think they're so closely connected to American national security. So when I decided to write a blog or a newsletter every week, uh, I didn't want to be precluded from writing about both. So then I thought, well, what would allow me to do both? And home and away, which is usually a sports metaphor type thing where uh, two teams play one another and what they, they play at two different locales, the home stadium or ballpark of one. And then the other, that's a home and away series. So it was my way of saying uh, I'll, I'll deal with both venues, domestic and international, but also a slight hint that I might every once in a while throw in some sports for fun. <laughs> OK, I'm looking forward to that. So I, I gave you a little warning. I always ask all of my guests to explain how they got involved in what became, what inspired them to do what they eventually did as their life's work. Uh, as a lad from Brooklyn, how did you embark on a, on a career of, in foreign affairs? I know you spent a year in Israel, I read. Was that uh, a seminal moment for you? It was something to do with it. Um, I guess what I'd say at the beginning, it wasn't by plan. This wasn't a design where I grew up saying this is what I want to do. It was more the I didn't know what I wanted to do. Uh, I grew up at a time where the, the big public debate was Vietnam. So they got me a little bit interested. I went to college, had no idea what I wanted to study. And I asked around and asked, who's the best professor? And a lot of people pointed me towards Professor Frank. And I said, what does he teach? And they said, New Testament. And I said, well, that's interesting. We never got around to reading that one at our house, but uh, yeah, I'm open <laughs> to it. And he was a typical great professor in the sense that he could make something I knew nothing about uh, relevant, immediate, interesting, exciting. He then said, uh, you're clearly interested in this stuff. Why don't you come to the Middle East with me? We're going to do an archaeological dig. So I did that after my what sophomore year. Of college, then I decided to spend my junior year abroad, as you say, in Israel. And I studied the languages, I studied history, and so forth. And when I came back, I decided I would get my degree in Middle Eastern studies. And then at Oxford, I decided I would get my degrees in international relations. And then at one point, I remember I would gave a paper uh, at a conference, and there were a couple of people there from the Pentagon, and they said, "Hey, you're a pretty smart young guy." How would you like to come back to Washington and work with us? And at this point, I was at a think tank in London, the Institute for Strategic Studies. And I said, sure. Uh, I've always wanted to really, you know, go work in the Pentagon. It always intrigued me. So uh, anyhow, it happened. And then I worked there. And then later uh, in the Reagan, that was during the Carter years. The Reagan years, I worked at State. And as you mentioned, I worked uh, Bush the father at the White House, Bush the son back at State. And it just happened. And then what you can do in America, which is really unique, Lurk, is you can go in and out. You don't have, I, I never had to become a career anything. And so I'd either be a professor or I'd be at a think tank, as you mentioned. I spent 20 years leading the council and I've had all these jobs as an insider. So I've been lucky. I basically ping ponged. And it's just, uh, for me, it's been one interesting, but two, I actually think each helps the other. My time in government. I believe, has made my academic writing much more rigorous and much more reality-based. And more my, time out of, mm-hmm. my time out of government's given me a perspective. Uh, so when I when I go into government, I felt that I, I thought 
uh, a lot about things. So when stuff came into my inbox, I often felt I was ready for it. Mm. You know, you share that with a lot of my podcast guests have said that more or less they ended up where they were accidentally. But also something you share is they said yes to every opportunity. Yeah, that's a really good point. If there's anyone uh, slightly younger than us uh, listening to this, which would most Americans, everybody <laughs> most Americans would qualify. Sorry, no, no, anyhow, that's ungallant. Uh, certainly in my case, the um, no. Whenever I speak to kids, I always emphasize: don't get hung up on a plan, because I notice a lot of young people. I think social media is added to it. Feel this pressure to have an answer and to have direction. And they put too much pressure on themselves. And I've tried to practice what I preach with my own kids and said, when you're younger, take jobs because they're interesting and you're going to learn. And you're allowed to be a little bit selfish when you're younger, when you're in your 20s or even early 30s, maybe take the jobs you'll learn the most too long. Not that pay the mortgage necessarily. And build mm-hmm. capacity. Later mm-hmm. on in your life, uh, you'll have more senior positions, whatever you do. And that's when you can maybe make more impact, give back. But I think early on, your real priority in life ought to be to learn as much as you can and to build capacity that then you can, again, employ for the rest of, you know, for decades to come. Well, I, I can't resist. Uh, we're going to talk about your book um, a little later, but I can't resist with everything going on in the world today in your vantage point to ask you about Israel and Ukraine and so forth. But I did notice um, your very first book that you wrote, which I read, and you talk about negotiations. And you've you've been a lifelong in-and-out diplomat, but your first book mentioned your experience in Cyprus. And what do you think about when you think about negotiations? What, What intrigued me was this concept of ripeness. There's diplomacy cannot accomplish anything unless conditions are ready for for an agreement or a compromise to happen. Um, can you share your thoughts about that? I just I just was very intrigued about that idea. No, my first job uh, as a representing the United States in a negotiation was Cyprus, and subsequently I did Northern Ireland. I've also been involved with India, Pakistan. I've been involved with uh, the Middle East endlessly. Um. Uh, And I did as an academic then develop this idea of ripeness. And I basically said for negotiations to succeed, you not only need formulas, you not only need venues that are acceptable, but most important, you need leaders of the various sides, two or more, who are both willing and able to make deals. Willing is a question of they've got to be open to it. And able is is a function of their political position. Uh, Essentially, are they strong enough to negotiate, which implies a degree of compromise. So they have to be both inclined and and, and able. And I said, when they are, then as an envoy, as a negotiator, you've got the raw material, I believe, to succeed. When they're not, and often they are not, then you've got to think about how you get them to that point. It doesn't make sense as a negotiator to try to bring parties together who aren't willing and able to come together. So then you have to think about how do you get them from there? What I would call a pre-negotiating phase. How do you either through incentives or pressures, how do you get them to that point? So to bring it to your question about the Middle East now, I think uh, in the wake of October 7th, it would be a fool's errand to basically say, we're going to go from where we are to try to solve this. There, uh, There's zero mood in Israel to solve this right now, to compromise. 
after October 7th. There's very few doves left in Israel. Virtually every Israeli is questioning coexistence with any Palestinian. Uh, in Gaza, you have a group, Hamas, that's not willing to make any deals. They reject the Jewish state. They killed savagely all these innocents, so they're out of the picture. In the West Bank, the Palestinian Authority, I would say some of them are willing to negotiate some kind of deal, but they may not be able to. They lack certain capacities economically, physically, in terms of their own leadership positions. So then I would say as an envoy, you don't want to push from where we are to try to go to quote unquote final status. Instead, you want to say to yourself, okay, how do I get the Israelis who, by the way, are able to make a deal but have zero willingness right now? How do you get the Israelis to dial up their willingness? And how do you get the Palestinian authorities or some other entity on the Palestinian side to dial up both their willingness and their capacity? So I would say the next phase of foreign policy, besides dealing with the war itself, dialing that down, putting out the war ultimately, is, is how do you position the parties to a point where then diplomacy has something to work with? And that, I find that a useful way to analyze a situation and then based upon that analysis, the degree of ripeness or not, then it helps inform what it is you actually you actually do. You made a comment that I thought was really brilliant in your blog. You said, if Israel seeks regime change in Gaza, why doesn't it articulate all that Gazans could expect politically and economically if they rejected Hamas and were prepared to accept Israel? You can't beat something with nothing. Time to put pressure on Hamas by promoting an alternative. Well, uh, I agree with that, since, as you pointed out, I wrote it. <laughs> you wrote it. <laughs> um, yeah, what, what's been conspicuously ac absent from Israeli policy, certainly after October 7th, but I would say before October 7th, is a political dimension. What no political track at all. It's no, all military. No, yeah. I mean, and basically, since October 7th, it's been pure military, and the Israelis reject the Palestinian Authority, or the prime minister does, rejects a two-state solution. We're talking then about an open-ended Israeli occupation. That's where they are. Before October 7th, I would say when historians, you know, if, they, when they, if and when they write about Bibi Netanyahu's decade and a half leading Israel, it's going to be a, a decade and a half of drift. And it was intentional drift. What he wanted to do was avoid getting to the point of a pressure for a, a settlement, a two-state solution. And he had a coalition increasing that move to the right that opposes it. So he's very happy with what I call the one-state non-solution. You've got Israel, couldn't care less about Gaza, uh, and they just want to continue settlement in the West Bank uh, and avoid Palestinian statehood or anything that, that looks like it. So what Bibi Netanyahu is most comfortable with is a version of the status quo extended ad infinitum. Uh, some of his colleagues want more than that. They want annexation. They, some of them actually want to transfer the Palestinians out. Those are extremists, even in an extreme government. But I think Bibi uh, much prefers, well, before well, Prime Minister Netanyahu, much prefers the status quo or the status quo plus to anything like what President Biden or much of the world want, which is a, a quote-unquote two-state solution. So again, it means that if you're in the United States, and I've been advocating this publicly and privately here, we have to think about either how we get this government in a somewhat different place, or more realistically, I would say, how do we get a different government uh, that might be more open to this? Because I, 
I don't see this government, either the prime minister or those around them ever being open to a serious political process. So then the question is, and it's really tough, Larry, how in the aftermath of something as awful and as traumatic as October 7, how is it you begin a conversation where Israelis don't let their under, their totally understandable and justifiable rage and anger and the rest preclude or get in the way of, 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 a, of a political process in the long run is not a favor to the Palestinians, though it would be good for them, but be a favor to Israel. Yeah. And then another couple of things have happened, as you mentioned in the last week, Netanyahu and Biden can hardly hide their frustration with each other. And the U.S. is the primary support. And now we have uh, these issues going on in the Red Sea as well that could take it from a local conflict to a regional or even a global conflict. Are you worried about that? Yeah, I worry about everything. I'm, I'm, I'm a inveterate. You're always worried. worried. <laughs> okay. uh, but I am worried. I think the chances mm-hmm. of war widening have come up, gone up the last few days in two places. One, as you correctly point out, the Red Sea and the Houthis, this Iranian-backed rebel group in Yemen, has clearly upped the stakes here, uh, the attacks. And they don't do that. I don't think that's independent. So my guess is that is Iran putting some pressure on the parties. That's an indirect way of Iran trying to help Hamas, which is also Iranian back. And then but that would involve less Israel than the United States and others if things come to a head in, in the shipping lanes. What could involve Israel is the possibility in southern Lebanon. What we're seeing is the situation there worsen. I, I've lost track of the numbers, but well over 100,000 Israelis have essentially relocated. They are no longer living in the northern uh, stretch of Israel within the range of all the short-range artillery, and they've moved south. And what you're seeing is increasing Israeli military action or preparations for military action in southern Lebanon. They'd obviously like to push back uh, Hezbollah further further north. And one part of me wonders whether the government in Israel is going to use this situation uh, to try to do that. And again, and this uh, I have no proof for this, so let me just sort of say that, but I believe there are those in the government who believe that uh, their chances of not being challenged are strengthened by a open-ended crisis. Uh, they are making the argument it's very hard to change horses midstream. I uh, can't have elections in such a context. So I think uh, if your goal is to stay in power, uh, there you know, there's not just strategic arguments, but there's political arguments for war widening. The United States, however, wants to see war narrowing. So again, we're on a very different page politically and military from, militarily from this Israeli government. Are we? Are, do you think we're past the point of no return? In terms of what? Of of a widening conflict? No, I don't no. think we're. No. Okay. I think uh, it's a possibility in these two venues, in the in the shipping lanes uh, and up north. But no, I don't think anything is uh, irrevocable. But both are are real possibilities. I wouldn't call them probabilities; real possibilities. And that makes me uneasy because what we have already is pl- is plenty bad enough. Right. And you mentioned Iran. What about the role of the Saudis in all of this? They're also becoming a diplomatic power, you know, dealing with the, the Chinese as well. Saudis very much. Uh, what indeed, what in part appears to have contributed to October 7th 
was that the Saudis and the Israelis and the Americans were talking about normalization between Saudi Arabia and Israel, essentially having the Saudis join the Abraham Accords. That's a big, big deal, given Saudi Arabia's not just economic clout, but as you say, diplomatic clout, and given their clout in the Islamic world, given that the two holiest places in Islam are in Saudi Arabia. So that would have been a big, big, big deal. And clearly Iran and Hamas wanted to stop it. And Iran had the added incentive to stop it because it didn't want Saudi Arabia to get a security pact with the United States, much less a nuclear program. So Saudis, though, I think remain interested in these things. And one of the potential wild cards here would be would be if the Americans and the Saudis could offer something to the Israelis and basically say, hey, we are prepared together to do, bring have normalization between Saudi Arabia and Israel, but here would be the conditions. And this would be a way of introducing certain things on the Palestinian side that in a context where there's a real incentive for Israel. And the way I would put it, ultimately, you would try to present the Israeli people with a choice between a greater Israel in the territorial sense or a greater peace. And I'm thinking a lot of Israelis might opt for the greater peace. At least uh, it gives us something to work with. So I think that's one of the few potential wild cards that the United States could introduce into the equation that that could help. Oh, and you also mentioned China. Look, I think China has a certain interest here. And this is slightly your bellywick, not just diplomatically, where I don't think they're a, pr a main player, but economically. China is the principal importer of uh, Iranian oil. Iran exports, I don't know, something on the order of 2 million barrels a day. A big chunk of those go to uh, China. Uh, the Chinese economy, you don't need me to tell you. Uh, you study it all the time. I was just there. Uh, they have got, they, they got their hands in. And the last thing they need is more expensive oil or oil shortfalls. So my own view is China's potentially uh, what you might call a limited diplomatic partner here. And it's just something that I would I would not dismiss out of hand. You know, at the same time, going back home a little bit before going to Ukraine, um, as events have ramped up in Israel and Gaza, it, there's been uh, less support for Ukraine. And obviously, with Zelensky's last visit, it seemed very clear that he was losing support. Uh, you have written in your article in Foreign Affairs with Charles Kupchin that it's maybe time for Ukraine to switch its, its uh, strategy from offense to defense to holding what it has. Could you explain that a little bit more? Sure. Look, I understand why people want Ukraine to rightfully get back what is rightfully theirs. I get it. And Russia is sitting on 20% of uh, Ukraine's territory. Essentially, they've been doing this now for eight, nine years, since 2014. They haven't really improved their position over the last two years. So for the last two years, we have supported Ukraine, not just defending itself, but trying to reclaim its territory. And it's successful, it's been wildly successful in defending itself, remarkably so. But it has been also unsuccessful in clawing back what it, uh, what it had lost, mostly in 2014. Uh, and they've lost a lot of lives and they've expended a lot of ammunition and arms in the process. And I simply don't believe that one or two more fighting seasons will change that equation. Uh, I think the Russians are too dug in. Russia's able to produce too much, too many arms and ammunition, able to import stuff from Iran, North Korea, 
get dual use stuff from a lot of places around the uh, around the uh, world. So I just I just don't believe that more of the same will yield fundamentally different or better results for Ukraine. Plus, I'm worried that the spigot of economic and military help for Ukraine uh, isn't going to stay as open forever. And we're already seeing what's going on in Washington, as well as in select European countries. So I would just say for Ukraine, I'm not asking them to give up their strategic goals, but I'm basically saying it's there's there's no reason to believe that, milit- that the military instrument is going to give you what you want in terms of liberating land. So focus on the less demanding task of protecting what you've got. Force Russia to go on the offensive, which they're not good at, which will chew them up even, even faster. Uh, and keep open the possibility of getting what you want the rest back diplomatically over time. And I think one day you will have a different leadership in Russia that will basically say, hey, we don't want to be pariahs forever. We don't want to be economic basket cases forever. We have got to reintegrate with Europe. And the only way we can do that is by coming to an accommodation on Ukraine. I think that day will come. I'm not smart enough to put a date on it, but it will come. It'll either be the person after Putin or maybe the person after the person after Putin. But it, but it will um, come. And in the meantime, I think well, it's a big accomplishment. It's an enormous success for Ukraine to be a viable uh, country with ties to the EU. That process is now get finally getting underway with certain ties to NATO, possibly. Uh, I think that's a pretty, it's not a perfect outcome, but it's a pretty good outcome. And I think it's a feasible outcome. And the problem with the so, so many of the so-called friends of Ukraine is they've all got more perfect outcomes. They, they, they just lack feasibility. And they lack the means to Exactly. To attain them. So, you, yeah, as you mentioned, I thought it was very good pragmatic advice for everything in life. Any time in life, there's a big gap between what you're trying to do and your ability to do it. You either need to increase your means or lower your goals. It's the only, and here, the only realistic option is to lower goals. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. I, yep. uh, once again, I agree with what I wrote. <laughs> what you wrote. Um, I, I picked a few gems out of, out of your writing. Um, you know, it was reported uh, that actually you were you did more than write about this uh, policy, that you were actually a participant in some track two meetings, along with a previous guest of mine, Tom Graham, a Russia expert at the council, um, and that you actually met with um, with Foreign Minister Lavrov. Is Did that happen? And it, do you see the fruits of those meetings coming about now? No, it's true that. Tom Graham, myself, a few other former officials met with uh, Foreign Minister Lavrov and a few others. Uh, he uh, asked for the meeting. We were glad to have it. Again, just philosophically, I've never thought that meeting with people was a favor. I've never thought that diplomacy was a, a favor. I thought it's simply a tool of uh, foreign policy. In this case, I made it clear I wasn't representing the U.S. government. I wasn't negotiating for anybody. Uh, it was just an exchange of views. And uh, Ukraine was one subject. The meeting came right after an earlier article by Charlie Kupchan and myself, uh, which uh, the Russians didn't much like. But it was a ch- chance to exchange views on this, exchange views, not negotiate, and on a number of other subjects, including the full gamut of U.S.-Russian relations, uh, and w- of which there are multiple dimensions. And you know, my view is these exchanges are, are are potentially useful. 
uh, you hear things that are, you know, that could be you know, give you some insight, and who knows what they take away from it and report back. You know, I, I'm not privy to that, but I, I I was disappointed and somewhat you know surprised to say the least. It, it's a lot of the negative reaction. And my thing, my views, people, they're just uh, I think they were way off base there, and we weren't representing ourselves as anything other than what we we were. And I just don't see why these kinds of exchanges where you can make it clear to certain parties that this is where informed opinion is. So make sure that they they can read us in that sense accurately, uh, that they don't kid themselves that, for example, American support for Ukraine is going to fade away. It's not. And that, you know, if they come away then with some ideas of the political and foreign policy realities here and they report those back. I, I don't see. Uh, I, I simply don't see a downside in that. I, I completely agree with you. And uh, you know, speaking of that, you're just back from China, and I think that there there are also unrealistic um, understandings of what's going on in the U.S., um, particularly in the business community here. And while the Chinese side seems to be willing to make economic concessions, they don't understand the political environment. I think not just for you know, not just for politicians, but also for business people who are facing criticism on both sides. So can you tell us what happened on your trip and what you learned there? Yeah, um, had a lot of good meetings, both with officials and non-officials. The, uh, it was right after the San Francisco summit meeting between President Biden and Xi Jinping. Uh, so there's a sense good of karma <laughs> right then. Good karma then, right? Yeah, good karma. But the only cautionary note I'd say is both sides wanted to stabilize the relationship, but for totally different reasons. Mm. The Chinese wanted a more stable relationship because they want a stabilized economic relationship. They want to avoid new limits on investment or trade or technology. The Americans want a stable relationship because they don't want to have new geopolitical problems with Taiwan or, any, or they don't want China helping Russia, they don't want China helping Iran, what have you. So we wanted the same outcome, but totally, totally different agendas and emphases. And I think it's important just to keep that in mind, just a little bit of a sobriety uh, here. So that was one takeaway. I think the business community here has to understand that the Chinese want to have, how would I call it, almost an apolitical business relationship with us. They want American businesses to invest and trade even more. And I think this puts American businessmen in an awkward position. They are trying to have American business leaders be an advocate for this point of view, essentially telling them, we know you all want access to our market. You should be an advocate in your own political system against new restrictions or even against existing restrictions. It's bad for you and so forth. I think it puts a lot of American business leaders in a very awkward position. The Gallagher you, Commission and so forth, right? Well, mm -hmm. I mean, but like I wasn't wild about that dinner or whatever it was in San Francisco. Uh, and, and I also, my message to the Chinese, I, I understand why you're saying what you're saying, but I think it's unrealistic. I don't think you can expect an apolitical business, a narrowly business defined relationship, political and geopolitical factors are going to intrude. 
And that's just something you have to take into account. You'll have to decide how important the business relationship is to you and then to what extent you're prepared to modify some of your political or military behavior. That's that's your call. But you're not you're not going to get to a point where you're going to have a narrowly economic relationship. If anything, it's going in the opposite direction. You just mentioned you know, the committee and Congress and so forth. Uh, indeed, it's one of the rare areas of bipartisanship in this country, which is uh, both sides now are increasingly taking a very tough approach to trade and investment relations with uh, China. And that, that's not going to disappear regardless of what happens next uh, November. So that, that was you know, one area of, of takeaways with China. The other big one is just how focused the Chinese officials are on their economic situation. Well, uh, they should be. <laughs> yeah. They should be. Like, you they know should this be, better yeah. than I do. But they, they were realists about one thing, which was the era of export-led growth was uh, coming to an end. And they needed a substitute consumer domestic demand-led growth. But they're not, they can articulate it, but I'm not sure they can bring it about. And so I think they've got a, a gap there. And that's China's problem. You know, all the, you know, there's dozens of other near, medium, and long-term issues from unemployment issues to real estate asset bubbles to demographic issues to environmental issues to you name it issues. Uh, so I think they've got a, a tough road to hoe uh, economically. And that's their preoccupation uh, right now. That became clear to me. I heard more about economics and less, say, about uh, foreign policy or Taiwan than virtually, you know, I've been going to China for, what, 30, 40 years, than almost in all my, you know, than in any previous time. What I find hugely ironic about that is that the same time the Chinese government has been taking over its own private sector <laughs> and politicizing Everything, yeah. So just well, that's their point. That's their strategic. Right. You're 100 mm-hmm. percent right. Mm-hmm. And I think essentially Xi Jinping has made the political, um, almost conceptual decision that to place priority on things political over things economic, even if it means uh, that economic growth takes something of a hit. And he'd be willing to say, "Yeah, it might, but it's the trade-off is worth it." Uh, we can't have the corruption, we can't have the independence, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I think, yeah, I think that's his economic trajectory or legacy or whatever word you want uh, or construct. And yeah, it's a it's a political first, state first uh, construct, which is costing them economically. And, you know, I think the question, and I, I, I think what will be really interesting is if things don't get better, and I, I don't think they're going to get better dramatically. Does that create a little bit of an internal pressure for introducing a bit of, not not total reform, but a bit of reform, a slight recalibration of the role of the state versus the role of individuals in the markets and so forth? Could there be a slight, not fundamental, but a slight loosening up? And I think the answer is maybe, but I don't think it would be more than slight. I think there's already a split that's been occurring because of the economic duress too. So I have a very uh, specific historical question for you about China during your times with uh, your time with Colin Paul. Lawrence, I, I just happened upon on Twitter a video of Lawrence Wilkerson, the former chief of staff, and he described how during the Bush administration there was an, a major internal fight between the Hawks and he said Don, Donald Rumsfeld and Dick Cheney who wanted to provoke China 
uh, with respect to Taiwan and those who wanted to keep the peace or the status quo, as you was talking, mirroring what you said about Israel too, that there was benefit to ambiguity. And that, and he named you and, and uh, Colin Powell, assisted by Bush and I think Condi Rice uh, on the other side. Is that inaccurate? Was there a split like that? Is that going to be in your memoirs? <laughs> well, there's a split on just about everything. Uh, okay. <laughs> it was, uh, I've been in two very divided administrations, um, maybe three, but certainly two. I mean, the most divided was the Reagan administration. Mm, and almost every issue was between Schultz, Haig and Schultz. Haig was followed by Schultz after 18 months at state. And Weinberger was at uh, defense. And Weinberg had people like Richard Pearl working for him. Haig and Schultz had people like Richard Burt working for him. And you kind of had the uh, more moderate alliance first people at the State Department and the more unilateralist, more provocative people, shall we say, at the uh, Pentagon. So that, that was structural in the Reagan, and almost every issue was a, an arm wrestling match in that administration. I think there's some lesser splits in the Carter administration, say, between the State Department, the Vance types, the, and so forth, against the Brzezinski types, who were a little bit more provocative. I think in Bush, too, in uh, 43's presidency, actually, before I even get to that, 41 had the least split administration I've ever worked for. There was more of a overlap of thinking and, and approaches and temperament in Bush 41 than I've ever seen before or since. Uh, and the good news, it was mostly right, I, I, I believe. Back in 43's time, there was a split, but the, much of the emphasis on most issues was in favor of, uh, quote unquote, the neocons, those who wanted to transform the Middle East, uh, hence the second uh, Iraq war uh, and, uh, and so forth. Uh, on other issues, though, it was a little bit more evenly split about uh, how allied-oriented to be, how how limited our goals or, ought to be. But yeah, I think there was, uh, on China, there was a kind of a camp that in many ways echoed Bush 41 and Scowcroft, mm. wanted to preserve the relationship, nurture it. And I was a proud card-carrying member of, uh, of that school of uh, thought. And let me, and that one... I think we did okay. I think there, uh, the the center held. Didn't hold on Iraq, but it held on that. Okay. Well, I'd like to go now to your book, your most recent book, and uh, I have an autographed copy I got sent from the council. By the way. Oh, good. It's and very valuable. Actually, I think very... sure it's more or less valuable because now you can't resell <laughs> it easily. So you can't return it to the publisher. So you may have seen your value reduce it. <laughs> I doubt it. Well, what prompted you to write this book, though? What you you talk about it, but I I think your reasons for writing this book are are actually profound. Look again, coming back to our earlier conversation, it wasn't something I planned for a long time, but it was one of those things where I'd be having conversations like the one you and I are having, whether in podcasts or in front of groups, and it always would come up. Uh, what worries you? Know, often it would be the last question. Or the next to last question, well, what worries you the most? What keeps you up at night? And so forth. They know you know a lot. That's why they're asking. <laughs> I pretend to know something. Uh, and then um, and, you know, I'd say, look, a lot of things to keep one up at night from China to Taiwan to Russia to climate change to North Korea to Iran to terrorism and so forth. But I said, what really keeps me up is us. And I'm not confident 
we're going to be sufficiently united or sufficiently focused to play the kind of large, mostly constructive, consistent role that we've played from mid-World War II to pretty recently. And that's what increasingly I thought was the problem, because if we could play such a role, then I thought we could probably deal with a lot of the external stuff. But if things broke down badly here, we wouldn't have either the political unity or the bandwidth to take on the world. And without us, I basically think things would go from bad to worse really, really quickly. And that's why I decided to write a book mostly that focused on us, to write about American democracy. And I very quickly concluded, as I read around the field, that 99% of the stuff was sensible and didn't have a chance. Almost going back to the ripeness idea. Everybody, you know, all these reports, and you got to fix gerrymandering or change the electoral college or get away with the idea that the Senate is based upon every state having the same numbers, all these ideas out there. You may think they're wonderful. You may think they're nonsense. doesn't matter. They're not going to happen. That there was zero ability to get any of these things uh, addressed. So if that was your hope for American democracy, then you'd reached a dead end. So I basically said, how do we try to strengthen or preserve American democracy at a moment in our history where things are getting worse, but the chance for these kind of structural changes is virtually nil. So I ended up focusing mainly on, my answer to my own question is then you have to focus more on behaviors, that you can't get legal or legislative changes and so forth, that you had to focus more on things that individual citizens could control, whether they were informed or whether they were voting or whether they were civil, whether they were involved in public service, whether they, you know, whether we taught civics in our schools and so forth. And these were things that these were doable. These were not missions impossible. Uh, these were these were mission, missions very much possible. So I decided to write a book focused on let's let's take the conversation a little bit away either from these structural reforms which i thought were not going to happen or from simply focusing on our rights uh which are necessary but also not sufficient and let's start focusing much more on obligations you and i are obligations to one another or both of us are obligations to the country so i really wanted to change the conversation in the in the the country and that's why I wrote the book. There's much, by the way, I've never written a book knowing so little about the subject. And it was a real, it was a real education for me. And, and my, and my guess is I'm not unique in that. And the, like a lot of us don't know is not much about America's history and our system as we might, or as we should again, in part, because I barely studied it in school. So this became a real project of self-education for me. And then I decided to write a book that I wanted to be short and accessible and understandable for a, a lot of other Americans. When I first saw the cover of Bill of Obligations, I thought, finally, somebody's not writing about rights, but about obligations. And it's a very Japanese concept, by the way. I don't know if you've heard of ongiri. It's the idea that every right that you have comes with its own set of obligations. So I thought you did a very Japanese approach, took a Japanese approach to this I, uh, question. I just spent on my way back from China, I stopped in Japan and I 
I often describe Japan as the, the foreign country I might be most tempted to live in if I were going to spend the year now at this advanced stage of my life living. So I find it very comfortable there and the sense of a social order. And you're right, it's a very, well, what's good about Japan is, yes, it's heavy on obligations, particularly of one member of society to another. But Japan has done it in a way that's not forfeited rights. Authoritarian countries, like the, if you think about them, citizenship is almost all obligation. Right. And they've taken away rights. What I like about Japan is it's accentuated obligations without infringing on rights. And I find that admirable. That's, I agree with you there. I agree. So I'm looking forward to the Japanese translation of your book. <laughs> well, I'm popular in Japan. Uh, yeah, I think you would be. <laughs> uh, they, um, yeah, I don't know. Lots of my books have been translated into Japanese. I don't think this one will, only because it might be a little bit too American. Uh, and I wrote it for an American audience because I'm most worried about American democracy. And because the quality of democracy here will so affect our ability to do what we do in the world, Japan is actually, its democracy, despite the recent scandals, is doing okay. Plus, as you know, Japan's role in the world, Japan is a foreign policy national security actor, is really quite remarkable how it's evolved. And it's becoming a much more capable, much more forceful and important uh, actor. And I Underestimated, I believe. Mm -hmm. Unremarked upon, underestimated. Mm -hmm. I often call it the Rodney Dangerfield of countries. <laughs> uh, I just think it gets overlooked and doesn't get an awful lot of respect. But I think uh, really, really important. It's been one of the quiet, not the words revolution, but it's been a significant evolution over the last five or so, 10 years, that what Japan is doing and the public debate in Japan would have been unthinkable uh, not too many years ago. Especially in terms of defense. And as to your point, there are scandals that see the light of day, but the perpetrators don't disappear off the planet. <laughs> oh, no, they just join another faction. And, uh, yeah, they don't disappear, but also Japanese politics. Everybody lives to be a faction another day. It's, uh, it is, uh, it's a, there's a musical chairs quality about the, uh, the, 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 po the politics. Well, I, I'm not going to go into the 10 habits of good citizens. I think our listeners will need to read the, yeah, the you book. Yeah, 10 but, people. You want to give a little bit of a tease here. Yeah, exactly right, because really it's it's worth reading. And, you know, at the end of it, and I agreed with you very much on terms of media and information and so forth, how critical that is to democracy. But um, I wonder, do you think that our, at this point, our, the Constitution itself needs to adjust to the new realities that we've, I mean, 200 years ago, we didn't have digital electronic, you know, media, for example. My answer is, could I imagine changes to the Constitution that would leave us better off? Yes. Could I imagine changes to the Constitution that would leave us worse off? Yes. Yes. Uh, <laughs> could right. I imagine a constitutional convention or what have you uh, that would either not agree or could agree on the wrong things all too easily. So it gets back to the structural change thing. I don't think it's going to happen. So you're right. People didn't expect this constitution to last with only 27 amendments, 17 after the first 10, the Bill of Rights, didn't think that was going to get us two and a half centuries down the highway of history. Uh, so there's that. Plus, also, people forget when we were founded, 
We were a country of 3 million people. We're now a country of 340 million people. Uh, think about the technology. Multicultural. Yeah, mm -hmm. there's just so many ways the founding fathers would be gobsmacked if they saw this America, uh, the, the, this, this uh, reality. So sure, could I imagine changes? Yeah, but it, it ain't going to happen. Uh, so the real question again is, how do we improve American democracy without constitutional amendment, uh, most likely? I mean, we hardly have any. You know, we've extended, the most significant ones have extended the franchise uh, to, to women, to 18-year-olds, obviously, to people of color. Those have really been, after the Bill of Rights, the most significant amendments to the, to the Constitution. I know it'll shock you and your listeners that introducing and then repealing prohibition were probably not the most significant. And the fact that those used two of our 27 were basically booze related. Now, maybe the founding fathers would not have been surprised by that, but uh, but I'm not sure we used uh, a good percentage of our amendments doing that. Exactly. I think one issue that's really eroding a sense of a national identity is the crisis on the southern border. Is that something that could be fixed that would help solidify um, the idea of citizenship? In a word, yes. I think it's uh, what's going on is outrageous, I would say. One of the few obligations of a, a sovereign country is to control its borders. Uh, I think it's largely been dominated by politics and the Democratic Party. Truly unfortunate. By the way, they're, they're paying a price for it, as they should. Um, you know, it's, these are not easy issues, but it, look, there's a queue for coming into this country. And it's interesting, a lot of legal immigrants don't particularly like the fact that so many people... Oh, and this, here in Chicago, you can't yeah. believe it. Yeah, And it's discrediting mm -hmm. immigration. Immigration has been one of the great strengths of our society, of our economy. I hate the idea that immigration gets delegitimized or discredited. Uh, we wouldn't be anywhere near we are where we are without all you know decades of legal immigration. I actually have long wanted to increase legal immigration, make it more education based and uh, and skills based. I think it'd be it'd be great, but we've got to get control of the border. We've got to come up with uh, something to do with what the 13, 14 million you know the uh, people here who even before the current wave. Who don't have uh, you know haven't normalized their their status. Yeah, so I'm a great believer in comprehensive immigration reform. It's possible that out of this mess with the aid, you know, with the hundred billion dollars in aid for Ukraine, Israel, a little bit for Taiwan and so forth, some of it for the border, we could get a, a something of a package. I think it'd be good. I mean, I want the aid to go forward. I want the southern border to get tightened. The asylum system makes no sense. The idea that all these people come in. And we don't have the capacity to hear their cases for five years or 10 years is, is, is borderline crazy. Crazy, yeah. These <laughs> enormous humanitarian exceptions, however well-intentioned they are, just aren't fair or sustainable. So, yeah, I, uh, I am hoping that out of this uh, hot mess that we have, both with the failure to pass the aid and with the border, that maybe we can make some progress. But I actually, I think there's a decent chance that come January we we will. Uh, you know, I wouldn't bet the farm on it, but I think there's a decent chance. I hope so. So um, uh, last question about your book. In the Bill of Obligations, you talk about how you have really attempted to be bipartisan 
in your views and uh, uh, nonpartisan, actually. And would you be willing or can you imagine yourself serving as Secretary of State for either a Democratic or a Republican administration? I, as I recall, you called for the resignation of Rex Tillerson, I think, at one point. But if you were asked hypothetically to serve in a hypothetical Trump administration, would you serve? Would you think that that would be your patriotic duty to make sure things go the right way? How would you deal with that conundrum? <laughs> Is it unlikely in the extreme? Uh, I, think or... <laughs> I, think it's, uh, I don't think you're going to have real world uh, evidence to test your question. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> uh, but there was interest last time around when Mr. Right. Trump won, and I was contacted by people. And I discouraged it, and I said, look, uh, I have two criteria for going in. One is, what's the job and all that? And, I, yeah, I, there's very few jobs now that would tempt me. You mentioned one of them. Well, yeah, I won't be coy. Um It'd be a great honor in principle, but, and it's an enormous but, it only makes sense to accept it if you go into an administration with a president where you're essentially on the same page. You see the world in similar ways. You know, I'm not saying you agree on everything. That's never the case. But you got to agree on the big things. So you've got to, for example, agree, say, on an ally, uh, that you see allies as major assets, and you're willing to strengthen America's alliances, or you're prepared to stand up to aggression or oppose aggression or what have you. I mean, you have to go through it. And you'd say to yourself, and what I said to them, and what I would say to anybody is, if we're on the same page most of the time, then sure, let's have a serious conversation about whether it would be a good fit and all that. But if we're not on the same page, then you're setting up what's either somebody getting fired or somebody resigning. And I don't think that's good for a president to to have that. Look, in my last job, again, I'll probably say more than I should. In my last job, when I worked for, for W for 43, we had a really good personal relationship, but I found myself increasingly disagreeing, not just on Iraq, but on any number of other issues with him and with his senior team. And my wife and I had a shorthand. She would say, uh, how was work today? And I said, well, it was a professional day. <laughs> what, a pro what a professional day was, was a day in which I argued against the policy. I lost the argument. And then they would say, okay, Haas, you go testify tomorrow. Or Haas, you go get on a plane and talk to the allies. Or you go do a press conference. So increasingly, I found myself losing all the arguments and then having to defend policies I disagreed with. And you can do that some of the time. And I think when you're in government, you have to be prepared to do that some of the time. That's that's what comes with the job. You, you, you never get your way all the time. But you have to get your way enough of the time and certainly on the big things. Otherwise, it's just very hard to uh, look yourself in the mirror and feel comfortable and generate the energy you need to do the job. So that would be the criteria for me. I would only yeah. do it in whatever job thought that more often than not, we were going to be rowing in the in the same direction. And if not, then I would say, I really appreciate your thinking of me, but I don't think it's in your interest or mine, Mr. President, Madam President, uh, for this to, to happen. I'll stay outside. If I can ever help, please call on me. Uh, otherwise, I'll be giving you advice. Sometimes you may welcome it, sometimes not. And I think it's it's just better that way.
Mm. I can't imagine you being not true to yourself for more than 15 seconds. <laughs> yeah, I'm not good at that. I'm not, I, I don't think that's in your explain, DNA. <laughs> it probably explains why I haven't gotten certain jobs. <laughs> <laughs> but for the best reasons. Well, Richard, thank you so much for joining me today. I look forward to your memoirs after you become uh, Secretary of State and have many more tales to tell. Um, to learn more about our guest, you can order any one of his books, of his 16 books now. Follow him on Twitter or X, which you're on semi-frequently. But much less than I used to be. Yes. And uh, then also, um, you pro you probably recognize him from his numerous media uh, appearances, which are listed in his Substack Home and Away, which I highly recommend subscribing to and which is free. So <laughs> one other thing, Larry, let me just add mm -hmm. one thing to your very generous list. Starting uh, January 2nd, uh, PBS is uh, debuting, premiering a documentary based on uh, the most recent book, based on the Bill of Obligations. So that'll be shown at a PBS station near you and repeated and on their website. And then we're going to create all sorts of learning materials that could be used in, in high schools uh, and, uh, and colleges, again, to basically promote civics education in the country. Wonderful. Doing God's work with that, for sure. That's that's wonderful to hear. So you've heard it here, a new series starting in just a couple of weeks then. That's fantastic news. Uh, thank you again, Richard. Thank you to the people behind the scenes who make EconView possible as well, especially our producer, Sam Fu. You can find us and our other podcasts on Substack, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and all the usual places. Thank you and happy holidays to everyone. Thank you. Happy See holidays. you in 24. Happy New Year. <laughs> happy New Year. Happy New Year.